0: Amen. Well, good morning, church family. We're continuing in our Story of Scripture series Uh, this morning. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Kelvin's story. We thank you for a story of someone who had really spent all of his time running from you, Lord, but you continue to pursue him. And Lord, we thank you for the the picture of baptism that we just saw, Lord, of of new life. And God, as we reflect on Calvin's story, we we think about our story, we think about your glorious story of redemption. And as we open your word right now, we pray that you would speak as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, this past week, in Major League Baseball, something took place that has not occurred since John F. Kennedy was in the White House. The nominating committee for the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown decided that there would be no one inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's not that there weren't some great players that were on the ballot for this year. These players have actually been on the ballot for almost a decade and yet they are continually a refused entrance into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Statistically, they're really unmatched, but the reason why uh, this generation of players is not being welcomed into the Baseball Hall of Fame is because of their character. A number of them have been involved in scandals involving, uh, involving per- performance-enhancing drugs using steroids. Others are involved in sexual scandals. Other of them have, been made, uh, uh, have posted things online that have been unseemly or deemed inappropriate. And even though statistically and on the playing field they had great success, they are not being welcomed into the Baseball Hall of Fame because of... Character. Now, some of us, the way that we read our Bibles, we think about the Bible like a sort of hall of fame of great people, examples that we're supposed to follow. Many uh, sermons and and books about the Bible talk about Bible characters in that way. But what we're going to find as we jump into Genesis 12 today and follow the story all the way to Genesis 50, we're going to find that the characters in Genesis, and really the characters in the Bible, are not worthy of being welcomed into a hall of fame. The, the phrase Bible hero is kind of a, an oxymoron when it when we really take a close look at these characters. There really only is one Bible hero, and that is Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to be faithful to following the storyline, to following the plot of God's word, we need to understand that there, there really only is one Bible hero. His name is Jesus. And so if we're going to be faithful and Understanding the first part of the storyline, the first covenant, the, the, the Old Testament, then we're really just going to have to get our eyes off of the people and onto the promise. The title for today's message is An Unbreakable Promise for Broken People. An Unbreakable Promise for Broken People. You see, the Bible is filled with, with stories of broken people and God makes these incredible promises to them and he also uses them even in the midst of their brokenness to bring the healing and the restoration that's so desperately needed. When we started in Genesis 1 through 3, we looked at how sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, brought about brokenness in the world. Remember this diagram that our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. Our relationship with the planet is broken. There's brokenness all around. But in Genesis chapter 12, we come to a turning point. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are called the primeval history. The, the, the last remaining thirty-eight chapters 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 12 through 50 are called the patriarchal history. Primeval is Latin. Pri, meaning first, like primary. A primary school is the first school you go to. Eva means age. So the primeval history is the first age. And then the patriarchal uh, history, the patriarchal section. Patri is Greek for family, and ark for first. So this is we have the first age. That's what primeval means in Latin. And then the first family. That's that's what the patriarchal history means in uh, in Greek. And so in the primeval history, we have the creation, we have fall, we have the ark, the flood, we have the tower of Babel. This is what takes place in the first age. The absence of the blessing that was promised to Adam and Eve. All we see is curse and death and destruction. As Drake said, bad things, bad things, a lot of bad things. But we see a turning point in chapter 12 where we're introduced to the first family, to, to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We follow these stories, a story of, uh, of God moving us from brokenness to blessing. Blessing. And so we begin today in Genesis chapter 12 at verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, listen, he's called, he's referred to as Abram initially, but his name gets changed later, so for my own sake, I'm just going to call him Abraham as we continue through the story. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and... Him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." As we follow these four characters through the patriarchal history today in the book of Genesis, we're going to to see four things. Here's the first one, that God's promises are intended to bring blessing. God's promises are intended to bring blessing. God calls Abraham and he promises to bless him five times in these three verses. He uses the word blessing. Now, the word curse has been used in chapters 1 through 11 five times. We saw the the curse on the ground because of Adam's sin, the curse of the serpent, the curse of Cain after he killed Abel, the curse of Canaan, the the grandson of Noah after, after Noah's son Ham dishonored him. So we see God replacing the five curses of chapters 1 through 11 now with five blessings in Genesis chapter 12. The blessing centers around three major themes. The, the land and and procreation, becoming a nation and then spreading that blessing to the ends of the earth. What we see happening here is just like Noah was being set up as a second Adam after the flood. Here we see Abraham being set up like a second Adam. Adam Abraham was told to go to a land to a specific place that God had planned for him. Remember, Adam and Eve were put in the garden. They were in God's specific place. Let me break this down for you in terms of a in terms of a chart. It starts with a with an emphasis on land set apart for the people to dwell in. Then there is the promise of blessing that God gives in Genesis 12 that mirrors the promise of blessing that's given in Genesis chapter 1. There's the command that God gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And here God is promising Abraham that he would become a great nation. You don't become a great nation without without fruitfulness, without multiplication, without procreation. And just as Adam and Eve were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it, in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is set up like a second Adam, another new opportunity to restart, to turn the tide away from cursing toward blessing, to have a dawn rise, the sun rise on the darkness of sin and corruption. But there's some obstacles here. How can Abraham be a blessing when he's living in a world filled with curses? How can he go and occupy this land? This land is already occupied by the Canaanites, by the the descendants of Ham, the one who was cursed, the the son of Noah. So the land where he's moving is, is already filled with people that don't fear God. And they're not gonna give up their land easily. And he's supposed to be, he's supposed to multiply into a great nation. And yet Abraham and Sarah are in their twilight years. And we know from chapter 11, verse 30, that they were unable to have children. They were struggling with infertility. So how is it that this family, they're they're already old and, and they've never had kids. How can they become a nation? There's all of these obstacles to the blessing. But the story begins with Abraham and Sarah. We're going to be following sort of the, the, the naughty and gnarly family tree of God's people. It starts with Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham goes. He goes to the promised land. But then as we pick up the story, look at chapter 12, verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So again, more opposite. He goes to the promised land. The Canaanites are living there. He's surrounded by enemies. And now there's a famine. So it says, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. So this isn't isn't going well. He was told to go to the specific land. He arrives there. And now he's already on the move. He's leaving the promised land uh, for Egypt. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Okay, this is starting really well. Okay, so it's not a good idea that you're in Egypt, but that's a really good thing to say to your wife. The husbands, if you haven't told your wife she's beautiful yet this morning, make sure that you even, if if she's sitting beside you right now, just turn to her and say, you know what, you're beautiful. That's a great thing to say to your wife. Abraham seems like he's on the right track except for what he says next. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. Kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. So this was Abraham's plan. They were just going to survive in Egypt and pretend like they're brother and sister. What Abraham didn't anticipate happening was that Pharaoh was going to lay eyes on Sarah. And when he realizes that she's unmarried, that Abraham's just her her brother supposedly, he brings Sarah into his harem. He marries her Verse 13, it says, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with plagues. So here's Abraham, the one who this promise has been given to. A promise about land, he's not in the land. A promise to be fruitful and multiply. It's pretty hard to be fruitful and multiply when your wife is in the arms of another man. And he's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And what, is his, what did his lie and deception bring to, Egyptian, to the Egyptians, another nation? It brought them a curse, plagues. So Abraham is clearly, listen, he is clearly a broken person. And we are following the story. Listen, remember, this is not a Hall of Fame story. This is a, a story of a broken person who has been given an unbreakable promise. So God mercifully spares Abraham. He ends up with Sarah back on his arm. They make the long journey home back to the land of Canaan. You can imagine what the car ride home was like with Sarah and Abraham after Abraham tried to pull that stunt. So self-protective, so deceptive. In chapters 13 and 14, we have uh, Abraham rescuing his knucklehead nephew, Lot, for the first time. We're going to see that as a recurring theme, but then we turn to chapter 15 and verse 3. Chapter 15 and verse 3, Abraham said, behold, he's talking to God, you've given me no offspring. Multiple years have gone by now, and Abraham has said, listen, how can I become a great nation if I have no offspring? Then look at verse 5, this is the Lord, it says, and he, the Lord, brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. Just try to calculate the stars that are in the sky. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. This man who had struggled with infertility together with his wife for all of their marriage. He's being told not just just one child, but the the whole cosmos filled with stars. That's how many offspring he is going to have. And then look at verse 6. It says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. He believed believe. This is the second thing we need to understand about God's promises, that God's promises are received by faith. They are received by faith. God intends to bless his people. That's why he gives these kinds of promises. And the only way that we can receive these promises is if we receive them by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The apostle Paul picks up on, on this theme. This is, this is sort of like a, like a like a theme that gets repeated and expanded all throughout the Bible, this idea of trusting God and believing God for his promises. This foreshadows you and me who believe in Jesus Christ and this is how we receive all the promises that are given to us in Jesus Christ. So in Romans 4.3 and Galatians 6.7, Abraham is called things like the father of all who believe. So if we believe, then we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. We're some of those stars in the sky. We're part of that multitude that belongs to God. God's promises are received by faith. We don't earn them. Now look with me at the same chapter, chapter 15 and verse 9. He said to him, this is God speaking to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. As the, look down at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham or Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years.'" but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Look down at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. God's promises are received by faith. God tells Abraham to get some animals and to kill them, to cut them in half. Remember I said dead animals show up at just about every key moment in the story of Scripture. Dead animals show up. Adam and Eve, when they were covered with animal skins because of their shame. Noah, as soon as he stepped off the ark, the first thing he did was animal sacrifice. And here, God wants to make a covenant with Abraham. And he has him kill some animals. And he divides them in half. And he creates this laneway, this this bloody path with with animal carcasses divided in half on either side. And then there's this delay. It it says in the text that, that... Birds, the birds of prey, vultures, scavengers started to come and wanted to eat the animal carcasses and Abraham's shooing them away, waiting for God to, to give him the next bit of instruction. What am I supposed to do with these, with these animals? And God was intending to make a covenant. And this is how covenants were made in the ancient times. That you would kill animals and you'd have this bloody pathway. And then both, both parties would then walk between the animals together saying, listen, we're going to make a, pr- a promise to one another right now. And if I don't come through on my end of the bargain, may I become like one of these animals. May I be dead and, and, and bleeding and left to rot if I don't follow through on my promise. That, that's how a covenant was made. So Abraham was waiting for the instruction. Abraham was shooing away the vultures saying, God, when are we going to walk through these, these animals together? But it never happens. The sun goes down. Still nothing happens. Abraham goes into this dream, and God makes this prediction four centuries in advance, or four generations, four hundred years in advance. It, he says, you are going to dwell in this, in this foreign land for four hundred years, and then I will bring judgment on that nation, and I will bring you out. God gives it this is a spoiler alert. He predicts the exodus. He, he predicts the slavery that the people are going to experience in Egypt And then, and then Abraham has this vision. When the sun had gone down, he sees a smoking fire pot, a big cloud of smoke, and then a torch of fire. These are symbols of God. In the Exodus, it's gonna be a pillar of cloudy smoke and a pillar of fire that's going to lead the people by day and by night. And it is these symbols of God, the smoke and the fire, they go walking through. And so God goes walking between the bloody animal carcasses. And that's amazing. But what is amazing is that Abraham is never told to walk through it. Because when it comes to God's promises, they are to be received by faith, not by works. What God was saying here is, listen, to Abraham, I am going to be faithful to fulfilling the covenant. As it says in uh, Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, it says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, he says, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. This is what's supposed to happen to people that don't fulfill their end of the bargain in a covenant. But Abraham never passed between the parts. He never walked that bloody laneway between the animal carcasses. Only God did. And here's what God was saying. Listen, Abraham, if I don't don't fulfill my end of the bargain, if I don't come through on my promise, then I'm going to become like one of these animals. But God was saying even more than that. He was saying, Abraham, you and your descendants, I already know in advance, will not follow through. And even though, because, you, because of your lack of faith and because of the lack of faith of your offspring, even though you deserve to become like these animals, God says, I will walk that path for you. And God is really foreshadowing the cross, that Jesus was, he walked that bloody path for us on our behalf. And we don't walk that. We simply receive it by faith. And so remember our, our, our. Uh, the, the covenants that, we, that we've mentioned before in the storyline of Scripture. Let me uh, show you this chart. Remember, Noah's uh, covenant was in uh, the, the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9. That was unilateral. The, nothing was expected of Noah. It was all the promise of God. And now we have the covenant with Abraham. And in chapter 17, he's going to say that circumcision is the sign. But again, it's a unilateral covenant. God is making promises. Abraham only needed to believe. So God gives this incredible promise in chapter 12, and then in chapter 15, he ratchets up the the, the responsibility that he puts on himself. He says, Abraham, all you have to do is believe. I am going to walk the bloody path for you. He tells him, your your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. All you have to do is believe. All Abraham had to do was believe. So what did Abraham do? Look at verse 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So here we see Abram and Sarah taking this sexually immoral shortcut. Again, these are not these are not Hall of Fame kinds of people. They are, they are not living the way they are. This is not God's design. God had planned for one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's what we see in the book of Genesis. And they are corrupting that. They are following the ways of the world. They're trying to help God along in fulfilling his promise. God doesn't need any help. All we need to do is believe. And so Hagar does conceive. They have a child named uh, Ishmael. So let's follow that on the, uh, on the family tree now. So we have Abraham and Sarah. Now Hagar is somehow uh, lumped into this complicated uh, family tree and we have uh, Ishmael as the descendant. Then we come to chapter 17 and God shows up again and he has this conversation with Abraham, and Abraham's like, eh, look, look, God, I, I've got a son. <laughs> I, I, I've got a son, so can we just pass the blessing on to him, and can he be considered my, my offspring? How, how about that, God? And God's like, how about no? How about we do things my way? How about we do things according to my promise? When I, when I said you will have offspring, I meant, I didn't mean for you to go outside the boundaries of sexual ethics. I didn't mean for you to transgress the covenant relationship you had with your wife. So then he says it, God says in verse 16, speaking about Sarah, Genesis chapter 17, verse 16, he says, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Remember Genesis chapter 1, we're supposed to have dominion. This is a fulfillment that kings will come from her. Genesis 17, verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? Then Sarah overhears the conversation in chapter uh, 18 and verse 12. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, am I... After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's postmenopausal. The, the years of childbearing are beyond her. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. Listen, when you try to deny the truth when you're talking to an all-knowing God, it doesn't work so well. She denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, God said, no, but you did laugh. Don't Don't try to deceive God. God is not mocked. As the story continues, Abraham has to do another rescue of his knucklehead nephew, Lot. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, an example of God's judgment. Now Abraham and Sarah, they're on this track. They're on this track of following God, doing things the right way. But then we come to chapter 20, and they go to live among the Philistines. And Abraham does the whole she's my sister thing again. And that's the exact same sin, he, but just in a different location. Again, the promise has been given time and time again. I will give you offspring. It's going to come to you through Sarah. And even when Abraham is supposed to be conceiving and having a child with Sarah, he's putting her again into the arms of another man. We are not following the people. We're following the promise. This is an unbreakable promise. And and the promise is in jeopardy so many times because of human stupidity and sin. And yet God proves to be so faithful. Sarah can't get pregnant with Abraham's son if she's sleeping with another man. I'm not sure how Abraham is putting all of this together. But the same thing happens. God gets Sarah back. He steers them back on track. And we come to chapter 21. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac means laughter. When Abraham heard that he would have a son, he laughed. When Sarah heard that she was the one who was supposed to bear the son, she laughed. And God got the last laugh. They have a son named Isaac so now we follow the family tree and we have Isaac into the picture now we've seen a, a number of confusing twists and turns because of human sin in this as the storyline is unfolding but Genesis chapter 22 has a human uh, has a has a a, a a terrible turn of event a confusing twist but it's not because of sin it's actually because of an instruction given by God Genesis chapter 2, sorry, Genesis chapter 22 is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture for me to read personally as a father. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham, saying to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That's quite a test. And for any parent, you you, you can't escape how troubling this instruction is. But Abraham responds. He responds with faith. He sets out with a number of his servants and with his son. In chapter 22, verse 5, look at what Abraham says. Then Abraham said to his young men, the servants who were accompanying him, he says, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, I and the boy, three things they're going to do. This is Genesis 22, 5. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham doesn't say I and the boy will go over there and worship and that I alone will come back to be with you. No, he says I and the boy, all three things are going to be done by Abraham and his son, even the coming again. The author of Hebrews In Hebrews 11, there's no hall of fame in the Bible because no one deserves the the fame of perfect obedience or righteousness, but there is a hall of faith. And Abraham is in the hall of faith. It says, by faith Abraham, Hebrews 11, verse 17 and 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. See, remember, Abraham knew God walked through the bloody path. Abraham knew that God would provide. In fact, that's what he says in chapter 22, verse 7. Isaac said to his father, "'My father,' he said, "'Here I am, my son.' He said, behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. God walked through the path. I didn't walk through the path. All I have to do is believe. So he gets to the point where he's even right about to kill his own son. And God stops his hand and provides a sacrifice because he walked through the bloody path between the animals that were slain. And so Isaac grows up. And he marries Rebekah. And it's in the story of Isaac and his children we see this third point, that God's promises are given by grace. They are given by grace. I'm sure that's been evident already as we've seen all the different times where Abraham messed up and sinned and rebelled against God's plan. And yet God was faithful. But God's promises are given by grace. When we come to Genesis chapter 25, uh, Isaac is now married. His, he's married to his wife, uh, Rebecca. And just like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca struggled with infertility. This is a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. Struggling with infertility. Genesis 25, verse 21. Genesis 25, 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca his wife conceived. Look at verse 23. God says, Two nations are 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 living inside of her womb. She was going to have twins. The older shall serve the younger. It's grace. The the children aren't even born, and God already established the plan of who was going to serve the other. Before they did anything right or wrong, the younger son was chosen. Then the children are born, in verse 25. The first came out red, all his body, hairy like a cloak, so they called his name Esau. Verse 26, and afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name was called Esau. Jacob, And so these two sons are born to Isaac and Rebekah. We can trace that on our family tree. So we have Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and Rebekah and they have twins Jacob and Esau. So this is, the, this is the continuing family that is going to develop into this great nation. Look at chapter 26 and verse 1. What we're going to see is the story continues to repeat. We see these different patterns and themes occur again and again. Chapter 26, now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Don't do what your father did to dwell in He says, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. And to you and your offspring I will give these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the circumstances are repeated with a famine and the promise is repeated. The promise continues on throughout the generations. It wasn't completely fulfilled in the days of Abraham. Abraham didn't see the whole nation. He just saw one miracle child. But God's promises are given by grace. And we see this clearly because as the pattern repeats, the problems repeat. As the the promise is is, is passed down from generation to generation, so is the sinful tendencies. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Oh, come on. This is happening? This is happening? This is now the third time in the story of Genesis? Like father, like son. Listen, we need to understand that our, if we don't deal with our sin, it will have effects on the next generation. And so Isaac falls into the exact same trap of selfish deception. And then Isaac himself gets deceived. It mentioned that when Jacob was born, he was, he was holding on to the heel of his older brother Esau. Jacob means heel grabber. It means someone that, that grabs you and tries to trip you, trip you up. It's someone who can't be trusted, someone who is a trickster. So when Isaac gets old and he's blind and, and, and basically an invalid, and Isaac tricks or sorry, Jacob tricks Isaac into thinking that he is Esau, and he steals Esau's blessing. Jake, listen, Jacob is a piece of work. This guy is greasy. He's, he's just flat out a jerk. I was sharing with someone else in our church that just, until I was like in my mid-20s, I always thought Esau was the good guy in the story, and that the blessing should have like ultimately went to him, but that's not how this, listen, the story is a story of grace. God's promises are received by grace. Jacob proves how undeserving he is time and time again. He lied to his own father, he deceived an old blind man. So we come to Genesis chapter 27 and verse 35, and this is when Isaac lets Esau know what Jacob has done. Genesis 27, 35, he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, heel grabber, liar, trickster? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jump down to verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which the father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, the days of mourning for my father are approaching when his father dies. Then he says, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So then Jacob goes on the run. He runs to his, father, to, his, to his mother's brother Laban. He goes to spend time with his uncle Laban. Jacob falls in love with one of Laban's daughter Rachel. And in a complete reversal and it's such an ironic twist the trickster gets tricked. Where Jacob, who had spent all of his life lying and cheating and deceiving and manipulating, he gets lied to and he gets manipulated. He thinks that he's marrying Rachel. He works seven years to marry Rachel and then Laban tricks him and he ends up married to Rachel's sister, Leah. Now, rather than remaining married to one woman for one lifetime, eventually Jacob also marries Rachel as well. And then as we as as we look at the family tree and what happens next, we see a highly dysfunctional family. We see twelve sons being born to and two wives, but four different mothers. Listen, Jacob was a piece of work. But God appears to Jacob in chapter 32 of Genesis, and he wrestles with God. And God changes his name from from a heel grabber to wrestler. He changes Jacob's name because Jacob receives the grace of God. He's no longer grabbing the heels of other people. He's now wrestling with his God. And those 12 children born from four different mothers in such a dysfunctional family become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the story continues on with these sons of Jacob. And this brings us to our fourth and final point, that God's promises are fulfilled according to his timing. His promises are fulfilled according to his timing timing. Even though Jacob didn't deserve it, he still received the blessing of God, the blessing that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. And even though Abraham never saw his family grow into a big nation, Isaac never saw it. Jacob never saw it. The promise is still fulfilled according to God's Timing. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37 and find verse 18. God's promises are fulfilled according to his timing. Genesis 37 and verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. This is the second youngest son born of his favorite wife. Such a strange phrase even to say that. A a favorite son shouldn't say that. Favorite wife shouldn't have multiple wives. You'd have a favorite. But Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph shares this dream with his brothers. His brothers already hated him. They hated him even more because Joseph was implying that all of them would bow down before him. And so they come up with this conspiracy plan. Look at chapter 37, verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say, a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. They will see what will become of his dreams. It's funny how these little statements actually end up being fulfilled. Oh, We'll see what becomes of his dreams when we kill him. They ultimately decide not to kill him. They strip him of this special robe that his father had given him. And they sell him into slavery. They expect to never see him again. They take that robe. and They tear it up. They cover it in animals' blood. And they take it back to Jacob. Again, Jacob the trickster is now being tricked by his own sons. See how what goes around comes around? The deception that we see in Abraham. Remember, listen. Kill sin or it will kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it'll kill your kids. Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. Technically, she was his sister, kind of his half-sister, just because of their complicated family tree. That gets passed down to Isaac. She lies. Or he lies about her. Then that gets passed down to Jacob. He lies to his own. He, he deceives his own, not some stranger. He deceives his own father. And not his father in any usual state, his father when he's old and when he's blind. You see how the wickedness just gets passed down from generation to generation? And then Jacob now is being lied to by his own sons. Be killing sin or it will kill you. So Judah speaks up. They decide not to kill Joseph, they sell him into slavery. He's 17 years old and he goes to be a servant in someone's house named Potiphar. But it says in chapter 39, verse 2, that God was with him. And then Potiphar's wife accuses him of sexual immorality. He gets thrown in prison. But again, it says in Genesis 39, verse 21, that God was with him. He was. He went to Egypt when he was 17 years old. He interprets some dreams for some other prisoners. Ultimately, he ends up interpreting a dream for the Pharaoh himself about a coming famine or, and the years of pros- prosperity that will precede it. So he's 30 years old when he gets promoted. He goes from being a slave to ultimately being in prison and then in the very end to being prime minister. But that was after 13 years. He went to Egypt. Egypt when he was 17 he was 30 according to chapter 41 verse 46 when he entered the service of Pharaoh then the seven years of plenty where Joseph is administrating and organizing Egypt in such a way so that they can prepare for the famine none of the other nations prepared to for the famine then you have the seven years of famine And here we see really the the first fulfillment of what God said in Genesis chapter 12, that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations were coming to Egypt to buy grain, to, to be blessed by Egypt. Why were they being blessed by Egypt? Because Joseph blessed Egypt by his ability to interpret those dreams and organize and administrate. And as all the nations are coming to Egypt, Jacob's brothers come to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Remember the dream about the sheaves and all of them bowing down before Joseph. This is all being fulfilled. It's happening right here, right now. They go back and forth a couple of times. Joseph eventually reveals himself to his brothers. He forgives them. He's gracious to them. He sends them back one more time to bring his father, Jacob, to see him. Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. Genesis 46, verse 3. We're we're beginning to see in small ways the promise being fulfilled. Joseph is being used by God to bless the nations. In Genesis chapter 46 verse 3, Jacob is hesitant to go to Egypt because of what happened to his his grandfather Abraham. But God appeared to him and said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go to Egypt for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up. Again, he says, "I'll make when you go to Egypt, I will make you a great nation. This is going to fulfill what was promised in Genesis 12, that you'll be a great nation. It was to fulfill what was predicted in Genesis 15, that for 400 years, you're going to be enslaved, but you're going to grow into a great nation during that time. Then look at Genesis chapter 47, verse 7. And we see the story starting to culminate as we get to the end of Genesis. Genesis 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh. So here is Jacob now, standing face to face with the most powerful man in the known world. And look at what happens. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Abraham initially, he was given the promise and the responsibility of being a blessing and he failed. He brought a plague on the Pharaoh at that time. But now Jacob comes and Jacob pronounces a blessing. Here we see the beginning of the offspring of Abraham being a blessing to the nations. And the story wraps up with Joseph forgiving his brothers and this promise that the people will they'll stay in Egypt for some time but they will one day return to the promised land But just like the end of a Marvel movie, you know when you watch a Marvel movie, you watch all the credits and then you hang on, right? You stay in the theater or you you keep watching it on your streaming service because you know at the end of every Marvel movie, there's this this little scene, this tiny little scene that will predict something that's gonna happen in the next movie, that's gonna carry the story along. And so in Genesis chapter 49, we have one of these. In Genesis 49, Jacob, he's about to die and he's gathering all of his sons together and he pronounces these blessings on his different sons. And he comes to a son who sort of up until this point has played a bit of a minor role. He, he did show some, some serious weakness earlier in the story. I'm talking about Judah. But towards the end, we see Judah really rise as a leader among his brothers and rebuilding the relationship between his brothers and Joseph. And God says to Judah in Genesis 49, verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. See, we would expect that Joseph was going to ha- be the one who had all of the father's sons bow down before him. Didn't, didn't, isn't Joseph going to be the great leader? Won't his descendants, won't his tribe be the main tribe? But in this final scene, the short little snippet, no, it's it's gonna be Judah for some reason. Verse nine says, Judah is a lion's cub. Look at verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Notice this, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So he said in verse eight that all the father's sons are gonna bow down before him. But then when we get to verse 10, judah as a tribe one of the descendants of judah is going to have the obedience not just of the other tribes but of all of the peoples And we see this ultimately fulfilled. If we put Genesis 49, the first book of the Bible, one of the last chapters, and we go to Revelation chapter 5, the last book of the Bible in one of the early chapters where we see Judah is a lion's cub and the obedience of all the peoples is going to center around him in Genesis 49, 9 and 10. But we come to Revelation chapter 5 through 9 and John is looking for the Savior. He's looking for the hero There is no one in the hall of fame. There is no one who is worthy. And John begins to weep and cry. And then one of the the creatures in heaven says, or one of the elders says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And then then everyone turns and worships him, the obedience of all of the people. They turn and worship him to say, By your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Right there at the end of Genesis, we have this, we have this little scene that paints the picture, sets the tone for the ultimate end of where the storyline is heading. That someone from the line of Abraham, specifically the tribe of Judah, was going to bring the obedience of all the nations, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who walked the bloody path between the slain animals. He is the one who went to the cross, who was broken for the sake of broken people so that we can receive the blessing that comes by faith and is given by grace according to his timing. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we try to make sense of what is happening in our world, even as we're trusting in your timing, as as the months of of this pandemic and these restrictions go on and on and on, Lord, we can trust that you have a plan that there is a storyline that we can follow. And even what is happening to us personally and and locally, even nationally, all of this is working towards this ultimate moment, which is predicted in Genesis 49, which is described in detail in Revelation chapter 5, that Jesus Christ is worthy and that by his blood, he has ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so, Lord, I pray that rather than trying to write our own story, Lord, that we would submit and yield and worship you because of the glory of your story. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.